Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is T.C. Boyle. He is the author of 18 novels and 12 collections of short stories, including The Tortilla Curtain, The Women, Wild Child, and many more. His new novel is Blue Skies, which is published by our friends at LiveWrite. He is one of our greatest living writers who I couldn't be more excited to have on. T.C., welcome to the program. Hi, Jason. Thanks for that wonderful lead-in. I feel good. All right. Wonderful. It's an honor to have you here, TC. And I'm going to dive right in to this novel. And what a fantastic novel it is. One of your best, in my opinion. Uh, The novel opens with one of our protagonists, Cat. And Cat is looking at snakes. Uh, What does it tell us about Cat, TC, uh, when we are told immediately that she's considering snakes as pieces of jewelry, living jewelry? What type of person treats animals as decorative objects? Well, just to ask the question gives it its own answer, and we have to let the readers decide this for themselves. But to set it up, uh, Jason, uh, the book opens with Catherine, Cat. She just moved to Florida from California with her boyfriend because his mother died and they can get a beach house from her, which they can never, of course, afford on their own. Mm-hmm. And he is very stickler for detail, and he's got the car in the shop to have it detailed, and he's looking over their shoulders, and she's bored, and so... She just takes a little walk down the street in this neighborhood in Northern California, uh, Northern Florida, excuse me. We, we go from California to Florida and uh, she's bored and she's a shopper and she wants to be an, uh, an influencer on the Internet. And so she sees a snake store called Herps and she decides that this would look great around her neck and catch attention for if she goes out to dinner or goes to a bar and she got this snake. So why not? Yeah, why not? Indeed. Uh, thank you, TC. And some people sometimes adopt pets as a substitute for children. Um, is that what is going on here with Kat? Is she purchasing a snake both as jewelry and as a child substitute? Because at this moment of the novel, her husband, Todd, is not ready to have children. Oh, I think that's a fair estimate of what's going on here. Sure. And there's also the matter of kind of revenge. He, in the second paragraph, I realized that that I know children, but he won't let her have a cat or a dog because he's allergic. Mm. And uh, so there is that. But there's also the element of the fact that she's never really looked at an animal like this before. It's beautiful. It's it's shopping. It's something in the, the window of the store that reminds her of a print top at anthropology. It's so cool. Mm-hmm. And also it gives her power. Um, as one writer about this book has said, um, a snake in a bag in the first chapter is like Chekhov's gun mm-hmm. in the first act of a play. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe, maybe we'll see what that means too. Yes, maybe we will. Thank you um, so much, TC. Kat, uh, the protagonist that we're speaking of now um, in the first chapter, is not named until page 11 of the copy of the novel that I have, which is an advanced reading copy. Um, Is this intentional? And what is the effect of this? By leaving her unnamed, uh, does it place the reader more clearly inside of her skin to open this story? Yes, absolutely. So um, I do a lot of close third person, Mm -hmm. so close that it's almost like a first person. And it's always difficult, especially with 
pronouns um, if you're going to call her her or she if there's another character involved. And I always kind of try to fudge this a little bit because when you're in your own brain thinking about yourself, you don't call yourself by your name. And so I like to get the reader invested in a character from her point of view. And so I don't want to repeat her name or to start off with, you know, the more traditional novel, you know, uh, Charlie Henderson was 37 and he lived in New York and he hated his mother and he had three cats. I mean, that's okay. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more subtle and more engaging in a close third person to invite the reader into the brain of this person. And again, uh, she doesn't call herself cat. Every once in a while, I have to remind the reader mm -hmm. that this is cat. Yeah. Absolutely. And also sometimes I do it in which somebody will, you, you'll just see a, a, a third person character and then somebody will say something to her and use her name in it. So the many ways of getting this across without having to be uh, journalistic or just make statements. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, while we're talking about um, sort of writing process type things for just a moment, TC, how... Um, how much time do you spend in, say, an average week writing? The reason I ask is because most writers who are prolific as you are, um, the quality of their writing is not nearly um, as great as yours. You know, I'm thinking not that there's anything wrong with, with genre authors and things, but I'm thinking, you know, um, James Patterson, et cetera, these folks that come out with a novel or a book every year. Um, how, how much time do you spend writing? Hmm. Well, I work seven days a week. Mm -hmm. It's my job. It's my life. But, um, yeah, I'm obsessive compulsive to a degree, but I'm also like to have a fairly normal life. So it's a typical day. I wake up early, six o'clock. I walk the dog, uh, clean up after my wife, of course, uh, do my emails and all of that crap. And then finally try to get into the mental state to write. I might work until two in the afternoon or something like this, uh, depending on how it's going. Uh, then I get outside. I go kayaking. I hike up in the Sentinel Mountains here. I'm in Santa Barbara, by the way. There they are looking at them right there. Yeah. Uh, try to um, be alone in nature if I can. Uh, I don't go hiking with other people. I don't play sports with other people. Mm -hmm. uh, I kayak by myself. I hike by myself. I like to be alone outside if I can. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because like you, my dear fellow, I am an animal and I want to be a touch, uh, in touch with animal life and be, be part of it. And of course, we're so removed from it all the time because of this sort of electronic existence we have to live. Mm. So that gives me a lot of balance, you know, and on an evening, maybe, uh, you know, I'm lying in front of the fireplace with a cat on my uh, belly and a dog on the rug, mm. reading a book and listening to music. It's, uh, yeah. It's a way of leading a, a normal life without having to focus constantly on the work. The work is there back in your unconscious, and maybe you're worried about it a little bit. But I'd like to put it in its place. I'm not going to write anything today until I get back to it tomorrow morning. And I broke off not long before we hooked up, uh, you and I, today. Uh, it's there. Uh, it, it'll have its problems. Uh, I don't know where it will go. I don't know where anything will go. Uh, it's all coming from the unconscious mind. And so the unconscious mind needs a little rest. Today, that rest is going to take it to the beach mm -hmm. and probably to a bar. There you go. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, TC. Um, to jump back into your book, the protagonist of chapter two, um, 
what's the correct pronunciation of her name? Is it Otili? I call her. I call her Otili. Otili. I think uh, in other languages it might be Otilia, but I call her Otili. All right. So we're introduced to Ottilie in chapter two. Um, and her son, uh, Cooper, is an entomologist. Kat is um, Ottilie's daughter, Cooper's sister. Ottilie is struggling here at the opening of chapter two with the concepts of recycling, composting, and consuming goods in general. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the struggle she is having of wanting to save the earth versus wanting to keep buying things to keep the economy going? It's the conundrum that we're all in, of course. Utterly represents someone like me, and I presume you, who understands that we have a huge carbon footprint and wants to try to eliminate it. And our society has pushed us in that direction since I was a kid. When I was a kid, there was no recycling. There was no nothing. Well, the resources were infinite. There were wild places on the earth. There were other animals. Uh, well, that's history now. And that's why I'm writing a, a book about the conditions of climate change and species extinction as it hits us today. You may know that in the year 2000, I wrote A Friend of the Earth, a novel that projects to 2026 and has extreme droughts, floods, weather conditions, and even a pandemic in it. Mm -hmm. But we're already here. So mm -hmm. I wanted to go from here and just examine a, a, a regular family and a highly educated, but regular family, uh, dealing with with what we have to deal with now, with no debate, it's here and we are facing it. Here in Montecito, part of Santa Barbara where I live, uh, five years ago, you may know, we had uh, a mudslide debris flow after a fire had burned all the vegetation off the hillsides, once, hundred year, uh, once in a hundred year weather event, boom, and 23 of my neighbors were killed in the ensuing uh, debris flow, which just swept whole houses. There's nothing left of them. You know, people were asleep. There's nothing left, not a brick, nothing. And talk to anybody living anywhere. And these kind of these kinds of events are happening more and more frequently. So I'm writing a book here to explore what it's like to live now and in the near future with the new normal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm sorry for the loss of your neighbors. That's terrible. Here in Basalt, Colorado, where I'm sitting recording, there's a mountain directly outside of my window that's totally bare from a, a fire um, a few years ago. So yeah, these things are happening. Um, well, thank you, TC. Um, Audely, who we have been speaking about, is trying to raise insects for food, crickets in particular, which she bakes into everything. Um, how much research, TC, did you do on crickets as food sources? And what are the many ways in which crickets can be used as sources for food? Well, of course, I have tasted them and I have eaten them. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of the biggest problems with global warming, obviously, is cattle and the eating of meat. You know, whole sections of the Amazon are going down as we speak because cattle ranchers need more pasture. Mm -hmm. uh, insect protein requires a lot less carbon footprint, and it's just as essential and vital to human diet. So oddly, wanting to do right, decides to cultivate and eat insects. And in that second chapter, we see her giving a dinner party, a kind of nice dinner party for her friends with various insect recipes. As far as research beyond that, um, I was fortunate enough to meet a 
couple of the local entomologists here from UCSB and go into the field with them. Uh, because I should say, one of the things that motivated this book beyond wanting to reflect on A Friend of the Earth from 2000 mm. is I had read 2017, around then, in the newspaper, a report from the Krefeld Amateur Entomologist Society in Germany. They had been tracking insect populations for many, many years, and they were seeing a marked decline in flying insects. Well, think about that. A marked decline in flying insects. When I was a kid, you'd drive your car in the summertime and the window windshield would be completely smeared with yellow goop from all the bugs. I just, last week on this book tour, I drove with my publicist from St. Petersburg, Florida to Miami, across the Everglades, one bug hit the windshield the whole time. So mm -hmm. something is, is very wrong. Talk about the food chain. Talk about the bottom of the food chain. Mm -hmm. There are the insects. Uh, you can kiss goodbye to all the insectivorous birds, the bats. Their history. There's nothing for them to eat. Even in the book, they wonder about spiders. What are the spiders going to eat? Uh, it's, um, it's a mystery, mm -hmm. and it's frightening what's going on. So that was another motivating factor. And that's why you see um, so much information about insects in this book. And here's a further irony. Atalie wants to, and hooray for her, wants to lower carbon footprint and eat insects instead of meat. Mm. But then you look at the Kreffel Society and you see that uh, even insects are in trouble. And what does that say about our species? Mm. Yeah. And I should say, I don't want to depress everybody listening to this. Yes, we're doomed. Okay. But mm. we still have art and beauty. And uh, I don't know whether we can arrest what's happening, but we have to live through it day to day. Uh, and for me, creating art is, is joyful in itself. And we should point out to them that this is a comedy, this book. It's yes. a comedy. It's a dark and grim comedy, but um, I think that you laugh inwardly and then when you're reading it and then you lie on the floor and, and, and beat the boards of the floor and scream, but that's that's good. I mean, that's what I want. Yes, absolutely. It is a comedy. It's amazing. Um, thank you so much, TC. We're going to come back to some of these ideas in a moment, but first, listeners, we're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsors. And then I will be right back with T.C. Boyle. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with T.C. Boyle, author of Blue Skies, which is published by our friends at Live Right. Um, 
TC, before we jump back into the book, another question about writing. You, uh, I believe, are a professor emeritus at the University of Southern California, um, and I've interviewed some of your colleagues there. I'm interested in uh, university English and writing departments having gone to two, worked for one. Um, how lucky are the students at the University of Southern California to have the faculty that they have there? Oh, wow. So I went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and I stayed in Iowa and got my PhD. And I came to USC. I'm the first writer they had uh, full time. And I started the writing program there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had great mentors and I wanted to be a mentor too. Uh, I love literature and mm-hmm. literature is in a fight for its existence with the electronic media. Mm-hmm. And I just want to do my part. I want to inspire people and uh, on the page and uh, in person. Mm-hmm. Um, are they lucky? Yeah, well, they are lucky because we have some, in the department, we have some people who are devoted to teaching. Mm-hmm. One of the reps against uh, famous professors mm-hmm. is that they don't really have much to do with the students. They're more interested in creating their own work and going out in the world. Um, I got it both ways. I created my own work and went out into the world with it, but also it's very intimate in a writing workshop. Mm-hmm. I read every single line they ever wrote and corrected them mm-hmm. as if I were a copy editor mm-hmm. uh, and discussed it with them. Uh, I loved it because it got me out of the house two days a week in season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, having interviewed many writers and knowing writers, that all writers are really mentally disturbed, drunken drug addicts. Mm-hmm. And they live inside their own brains to the degree at which they become diseased, shells of human beings just crumbling and rotting. So, so to get out of the house and uh, go to a university setting and talk with what you love most in the world with really engaged people is a great thing. It gets you out of yourself. And the problem with being a novelist is, aside from what I just mentioned, is you're locked inside yourself. And uh, it, it was good for me. And I'm not doing that anymore because it's at over two hour drive to get to USC from Santa Barbara. And I, uh, you know, it's just a hobby of mine. I only did it for 37 years. Yeah. Now, however, I'm getting crazier and crazier because I don't have that release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, um, thank you for that insight. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm definitely um, envious of the students that go to that university with the wonderful folks who work there. Well, um, back to your novel, Blue Skies. Uh, this book, TC, is set in both Florida and California, as you mentioned earlier. I cannot think of two states that are ideologically, especially in the present moment, more different from one another. Uh, in what ways, though, in the world of your novel, are they the same? When I arrived in Miami, one of my supporters said to me, welcome to DeSantistan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this book is not especially political. It doesn't really enter into it. We all know how the sides are divided up. And by the way, as soon as I finished this book, I started writing two stories, in one of which you will meet a woman in a MAGA hat, mm-hmm. the one that's going to be an Esquire in July, mm-hmm. called Sanctuary. Um uh, but this book didn't didn't go there. It didn't need to. It was it's about something else altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, repeat. What was the gist of the question? I've already lost the, the gist of the question. Is um, here. yeah, obviously the states are ideologically different. Oh yes, 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 yes. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so I chose this because of the irony involved. We are undergoing a 1,200-year drought, and we had a miraculously rainy winter, but prior to that, it hadn't rained at all mm. uh, for a long, long time. Uh, meanwhile, my close friends in northern Florida are being inundated, not only by hurricanes and rains, but also by sea rise, which is the most insidious that is going to wipe out a lot of the world's cities as the years progress. And so I wanted to contrast the, the two regions and the way in which they are adversely affected by the climate change, which is changing the world radically and rapidly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, TC. Um, a topic that interests me, but interests me in the terrible way that a train wreck might interest a person, um, is the concept of influencer as a title or a job. Cat uh, in this novel really, really, really wants to be an influencer, uh, which is part of the impetus for her purchase of a snake. Uh, what has to happen to a person, TC, for their life goal or ambition to be the desire to be an influencer? Well, they want to make money for one thing. They want to get their face on camera, of course. Uh, in doing a little research on this, I have a friend who, who does this professionally. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, here's your shot. It's like creative writing. You write your story, you send it off. Maybe somebody buys it. Maybe you move up the food chain. And so everybody's trying to do this. Uh, uh, fashionistas, uh, uh, people in all walks of life. Uh, for Kat, I think she's rather shallow, at least in the beginning. Mm. And she doesn't really see the ramifications of all the things that we're talking about today. Um, she wants to look good. She loves clothing. She wants to move up the food chain, that is, get sponsorships from various uh, uh, people who make products. And she does eventually, but in a negative way. Mm -hmm. We can't always control the publicity we get. True, true, true. Not all publicity is good publicity, contrary to popular belief. Um, now, listeners, we are going to get into some spoiler territory here. So if you would, because I really want you to read this book. Uh, it is so good. But if you would, please take a moment to find your device or your screen, press pause. I'll give you a few seconds here. You're picking up your phone. You're reaching for your car screen. You're pressing pause. And you will return to this interview after you finish this magnificent novel. All right. Um, spoiler territory here. TC first. Cooper loses his arm due to the effects of a tick bite. How far down uh, the rabbit hole of phantom limb pain and prosthetics and such did you go while you were researching this novel? Well, Jason, as you may know, there is a certain voodoo involved in writing fiction and creating anything. Mm -hmm. And so I had gotten to the third chapter in which Cooper goes out of the field with his girlfriend Mari, who is an acarologist. Acarologists study ticks. He specialized in butterflies, the monarchs in particular that we have out here. Mm -hmm. um, I had finished that chapter, and if you recall, they've gone out in the field, and you, they, they drag a cloth through the chaparral uh, to see what falls on it. That's how they get their ticks. But however, because of global warming and the crazy winds we have, the devil winds that are blowing all the time, the sheet was flapping and they couldn't do it. So after a while they gave up and they went to a club 
up on the hill and went dancing and drinking and so on. And when they got back and they're getting ready for bed, Cooper notices when he's taking his shirt off that in the mirror, he finds a small tick larva on his forearm. And it's so small, it's, it's hardly visible, but he knows what it is. Chapter ends. Then I move on to the next cat chapter and they, and they revolve back and forth. However, in the interim, before I got back to Cooper, I was hiking in the chaparral. And by the way, I've had uh, many cases of Lyme disease and, and many uh, tick bites. Mm. You know, I'm you know, I'm a real altruist. Like, somebody's got to feed the ticks, right? Otherwise, <laughs> their babies would starve. Mm-hmm. So in any case, this happened to me in the interim. Uh, tick larva on my arm. Uh, COVID was raging. I couldn't go to the doctor. So I took a picture, held it up for him, and he looked at it. And he diagnosed it as cellulitis. This is a bacterial infection of the epidermis, and it can be quite dangerous. It can lead to necrotizing fasciitis, for instance. Uh, it, could, uh, it could poison you. It's not a good thing. And thank God we still have some antibiotics to control it. Uh, he had me uh, draw a line around it in magic marker to see if it was spreading. And for the first week, it spread, and it went all the way to the other side of the the arm. Uh, and it made me nervous. But finally, the course of antibiotics kicked it back. Mm-hmm. Immediately then, when I wrote the next chapter of Cooper, I inflicted it on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. But that's so strange that it should happen while I'm in the middle of writing this. Mm-hmm. Again, writing for me is extremely improvisatory and spontaneous. Yeah, sure, I have an idea of where it's going, but I don't know exactly. I don't have an outline. It mm-hmm. it suggests itself to me, line by line, day by day. And you may see in my finished novel or my finished short stories, and they look seamless, and may, I hope they are. Mm-hmm. But that's not a question of mathematics or abstraction. It just happens um, from some internal structure that I can't conceive of. I couldn't write out. I might jot down ideas. I have ideas where it might go, but it goes on its own, which is why I love to do it. It's always surprising to me. Every story, I don't know what it will be. It starts with a line. I follow it. And if I'm lucky, it it ends beautifully. And then I go on to the next one. Absolutely. Um, Speaking of things looking seamless, second spoiler alert here, listeners, um, you set this novel up masterfully from the very first paragraph, which I can see upon a reread. I wrote down, oh no, in the margins of page 135, which is when I realized that the snake was going to eat Cat's babies or one of Cat's babies. Um, can you talk about the work you did to set this moment up when the snake, Willie too, eats Cat's child? And more generally, can you talk about the dangers of forgetting that animals and nature and the planet Earth are things that have their own agendas that may not necessarily involve human constructs or ideologies? Oh, sure. That's the point, to dramatize it. Um, To answer the question, you'd have to read my entire 31 books because it's a method that's not a method that could be taught or examined in any way other than that. uh, you uh, I mean, you can look back and see how subtle hints appear and uh, the characters develop and so on. I mean, it's part of storytelling. Did you know that the snake that this was a moment the snake was heading for when you began the novel? Um, yes. 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 Because so I had read about a similar occurrence 
Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm putting together many different stories and incidents to see how they will all add up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, of course, it's quite obvious that um, we are uh, destroying all the other species and destroying ourselves in the process. But of course, it's not my job to to lecture anybody. Uh, lecturing is for an essay, not for a novel. A novel is a seduction. And I want to seduce you into the scenario and surprise you by what happens. When I wrote A Friend of the Earth back in 2000, which is the companion piece to this book, mm-hmm. uh, I noticed that during my tour, a good portion of the audience consisted of biologists. Mm-hmm. And when I would speak with them afterwards, they would say something like this. Well, you know, we've been talking about these subjects and these problems for many, many years, but no one listens. However, when you do it on the page in the novel and dramatize it, it can be extremely powerful. Yeah. And it can change people's behavior. I don't know about that. I'm not out to change people's behavior. I'm out to create a scenario to try to explain to myself or figure out to myself what it is like on this mysterious planet that has no purpose whatsoever. Uh, of us being an animal species among other animal species. I mean, this, I guess, looking back, would be one of my major themes. My last novel, uh, Talk to Me, right here. Mm -hmm. This is about the experiments in the 70s of trying to teach the chimps our language. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, okay, what is... We are always told that language is what distinguishes us from the other animals. And this is why this is what justifies our, you know, killing them, eating them, capturing them, mm. torturing them, destroying the world for them. Um, if they can talk our language, then can we justify it? So a chimp is as smart as a three year and a half year old kid. And by the way, there's one running around in this house right now, not a chimp, but a three and a half year old kid. Mm-hmm. They're pretty damn smart. Yeah. Um, besides which, the whole idea of, of, of teaching another animal our language is crazy because, well, what did we hope? We hope that a chip would reveal something about life that we don't know or we've lost. Mm-hmm. But that's not the, the, the point exactly because the chimps have evolved alongside of us in a different way. And they have their own language, which is primarily gestural. Uh, it doesn't involve words, but it's just um, as definitive in expressing what they want as words would be. So they have their own thing. If we hadn't destroyed their environment and put them in cages, they wouldn't need to talk our language. Now they need to kind of mooch from us, you know, and it's so sad. Uh, the chimps you see in film and in these these labs, these experiments, well, these are juveniles. Once a chimp becomes an adolescent, it's got the strength of five men and it's dangerous. It's a wild animal. You know, dogs, dogs have been acculturated to us for thousands of years and the bad seed for the most part has been eliminated. The chimp is a wild animal right out of the jungle, especially in the seventies. Uh, and there's no telling what's, what they're going to do. So yeah. an animal that's so smart and is acculturated to us. And then it's put in a cage. It lives to be 50 years old. I wanted to kind of examine the ethics of that and what it might mean and what we expect to learn from other species and how we should go about that. It's a sad book, by the way. For those who haven't read it, uh, there is a point in the book at which you will sob 
And if you don't sob, that means you were born without a soul. Oh, geez. <laughs> TC, and I'm glad you said, um, so you said it's it's not your job to lecture. It's your, in your, your, kind of your um, mode of operation is to weave the details um, into the story. And um, I mentioned something exactly along those lines for a review of your novel that'll be in the Colorado Sun this weekend. Um, but... Um, I'm going to ask you to lecture for a moment, and this is uh, the last question. I could talk about this novel all day and probably will talk about this novel all day with my colleagues, but um, this is a climate fiction novel, a cli-fi novel, as you call it in your book, which is a term I only just learned as I was reading the novel, though it now seems obvious. Um, but the things that make it cli-fi are not obvious um, until you really dig into the details or until the latter half of the novel. Until then, the climate disaster is subtly woven into the details. It's not something we are beaten over the head with, uh, which is a good thing to this reader, at least. But this is a two-part question. Uh, number one, what is the current state of this emerging genre of climate fiction, in your opinion, if you have one? And two, as far as the actual climate dangers that we are all living through uh, and are in right now, do you believe we humans still have the opportunity to turn this thing around, or is it too late? As for the first part, um, I can't speak to it because this is some designation that somebody invented recently. You know, mm -hmm. I'm one of the first to write about this kind of scenario because this is what I'm obsessed with. Mm -hmm. um, do humans have a chance of avoiding the worst? Well, no, obviously not. Uh, it, every day, everything gets worse. Eight billion people now. Uh, yes, we've made advances in the right direction, as we discussed earlier in this interview. Mm -hmm. uh, we're trying to go, uh, you know, uh, go toward electric cars and uh, to try to reduce our carbon footprint. This is all very admirable. But of course, that's in the uh, uh, wealthy industrialized societies. What's the rest of the world going to do? And further, the sea rise and the melting of the glaciers and water, availability of water, those are our biggest problems at this at this moment. And I don't know what the solution to that is. We're already seeing these uh, the, the rise of fascism throughout in America and, uh, and throughout Europe and other places of the world. These are gangs taking over to hoard the resources to themselves. Look at Syria. Uh, that's what that was all about. A gang needs resources, so it takes yours. Uh, think of the people in Bangladesh, you know, like a foot above sea level. When the sea level rise comes in there, what are these hundreds of millions of people going to do? Where are they going to eat? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to sleep? So, of course, I'm the guy who wrote the Tortilla Curtain, too, about uh, immigration. Uh, I think it's just going to get worse and more exclusive. I don't see any, any happy resolution to our problems right now. We are selfish. We will we will drive our Cadillac till uh, till the air is black, and we will uh, eat our insects till they're all gone. I don't know. I wish I had better news. I'm just I'm just reflecting on how it feels to be alive now. Uh, I can't help addressing all these problems in my work, especially in the short stories. Not only climate problems, but uh, but soci sociological problems too. Um, and yet, yet, I remain as depressed as I am, joyful as well. Uh, every day uh, is gorgeous. I'm looking out into a, a natural woods, 
I dug a pond out back 30 years ago for the creatures, the, the monarch butterflies, which you see in a kind of uplifting portion of this book, they, they come to overwinter out back there. And yes, their numbers are drastically reduced, but the last couple of years they've been improving. I think, wow, this is why I wrote Blue Skies. How do you and I deal with it? Yes, absolutely. And thank you uh, for addressing these issues in your work, TC. And thank you for writing this wonderful novel, which I'm confident at this juncture will be one of the best of the year. Listeners, I've been speaking with TC Boyle, author of Blue Skies, which is published by our friends at LiveRight. TC, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome, Jason. Thanks so much. Once again, I would like to thank T.C. Boyle for joining me. Copies of Blue Skies can be ordered at www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore process. My name is Jason Jeffries and this has been Bookend.